Hey y'all, this is Theo, and welcome back to LGBT Michigan, an LGBTQ plus history podcast. So it's been a hot minute since the last episode, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, you know, life kind of got the best of me, and then the time machine's engine stalled out, and you know, I had to get that repaired. So here we are, long time later, but let's go. When we last left off, we just finished a quick survey of LGBTQ plus persecution in the 20th century in the USA, which gave us a fair amount of jumping off points for further exploration. Today, we're going to look a bit deeper into the homophile movement, the Lavender Scare, and LGBTQ plus culture in the 1950s and the early 1960s. So first things first, while I will be focusing on what life during World War II was like in a later episode, I feel like I should briefly explore what life after the war looked like to talk about the atmosphere of the U.S. leading up to the time period and, you know, the parts of history that we're tackling today. Let's sum it up by saying that military life attracted a lot of gay and lesbian individuals, but also the war changed the atmosphere of the United States in a way that opened the door for a lot of LGBTQ plus people. While working-class women had been in the workforce for a while, the war put middle-class women to work while the men were away. This is pretty well known, with the whole Rosie the Riveter, we can do it thing. But when the war ended and men came back, a fair amount of women actually wanted to, and needed to, continue working. Lesbians in particular saw this as a chance to support themselves economically without a husband, and without necessarily outing themselves. So, a few polls were taken between 1943 and 1945, and they showed that 61-85% to 85% of women wanted to keep their jobs. This included 47-68% to 68% of married, presumably heterosexual, women. On top of the changes in the workforce, America's perceptions of what a man should be changed post-war. A lot of men returned from the war traumatized. Because of this, society kind of allowed men to be more emotional and express their feelings more than they had been allowed to in the past. This meant that the stereotypical, strong, silent, quintessentially heterosexual man that America knew and loved was replaced with a new, sensitive man who had many of the qualities of a homosexual. In some ways, this brought a new freedom for gay men whose behavior now wasn't a dead giveaway for their sexuality anymore. And third, homosexuals had undergone a sexual revolution during the war, let's say, and this revolution contributed almost immediately to a new sense of community, first in the armed forces and then in civilian life. A lot of LGBTQ plus veterans didn't return home after the war. Instead, they moved to large cities where they knew they could live more openly and form said communities. While these urban homosexual communities weren't new, their numbers were now much longer, larger than they had been in the past. No longer isolated, they had the tools and the capabilities to build spaces for themselves. These spaces were often restaurants and bars, theaters, coffee houses, parks, sports teams, and more. And a lot of cities accommodated these needs, and so we saw the creation of LGBTQ neighborhoods, most like San Francisco's North Beach, Boston's Beacon Hill, and the most known, New York's Greenwich Village. A lot of these neighborhoods were in less prosperous areas, um, one, because veterans didn't have a lot of money, and two, because the small-scale economy of the areas facilitated affordable retail space, which was a necessary building block for newly forming communities. So, there were more women in the workforce, which allowed lesbians the opportunity to support themselves, gay men's behavior no longer put a target on their back, 
And because of post-war migration, cities were now becoming gay havens. Amazing! On top of that, the late 1940s and early 1950s were marked by Alfred Kinsey's Kinsey Reports, which completely changed the way Americans thought and talked about homosexuality. Alfred Kinsey was a biologist and sexologist who studied the sexual behavior of the human male and published his findings in, guess what its name is, y'all, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, in 1948. And then later, a sequel, Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, in 1953. His findings concluded that the number of individuals who engaged in or thought about engaging in homosexual, homosexual behavior was much, much higher than anyone had previously thought. This completely blew the minds of the American populace. Part of it's because the Kinsey reports came out as the U.S. was trying to readjust to an overtly heterosexual paradigm after World War II, and also the reports demanded to be acknowledged as scientific. This was research done in all of the correct scientific ways, and it proved something that no one wanted to admit. Not only was homosexuality something that was happening, it was something that was common. The reports made Americans realize that homosexuality was everywhere, even when it couldn't be seen, and this caused a huge uproar. In the old way of thinking, the invert was immediately identifiable by his effeminate effect, but this new hidden homosexual could be lurking anywhere. It was a fear that became a huge part of what led to the Lavender Scare, a big part of LGBTQ plus history in the 1950s. So the Lavender Scare was a facet of McCarthyism, the witch hunts um, during which anyone who was suspected of being communist was sought out and fired. So in the same way, anyone who was thought of, suspected of being a homosexual was fired. However, the efforts to excise homosexuals from the U.S. State Department became, began in 1947, before Joseph McCarthy's 1950 allegations of communism. So between 1947 and 1950, approximately 5,000 men and women dis were dismissed from the armed forces and civilian agencies for being homosexual. However, it wasn't until President Eisenhower's executive order 10450 in 1953, which barred homosexuals from working in the federal government, that the Lavender Scare truly began. So the justification behind the removal of the homosexual workers in the State Department was twofold. The primary reason was that lesbian and gay men were depraved, apparently, and they functioned against societal norms, which, you know, I norms aren't that great so why would you want to function with them but whatever and secondary to that was the risk of their alleged depravity making them more likely to be communist sympathizers and risks because of a homosexual um tendency towards character weakness is what they said so let's let's unpack that a bit first off homosexuals are just horrible human beings and had no morals and would sell out their countries for nothing i guess is what they thought Second, I think they also full, firmly believed that because no one wanted to be outed as a gay man or lesbian woman, it made it them much more easier to blackmail. So communists, if they got a hold of that information, had material they could use to force these people to give up state secrets and betray the United States because they wanted to protect themselves from said blackmail getting out. All of this to say... State Department didn't really think highly of homosexuals. So, yeah. 
The effects of this executive order remained in place until 1995, and it's unknown how many homosexuals were fired during this period, but the existence of the executive order instilled fear in LGBTQ plus individuals of all walks of life. They faced removal from the U.S. military and from any place of work if they were found out. Most notably on the military front was retired Rear Admiral Selden Hooper. He was removed through Article 125, sodomy, Article 134, conduct of a nature to bring discredit to the armed forces, and Article 135, conduct unbecoming to an officer and a gentleman of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Even though Hooper had been retired, he'd been entitled to wear the uniform and draw the pay of a naval officer. And also, retired officers were part of the nation's national defense effort. Therefore, they were subject to court-martial, the same as active-duty officers. Because of this, Selden Hooper became the only admiral of the U.S. Navy to be convicted of by court-martial. And so, following this example, from 1947 to 1950, the number of military personnel shrank, shrank by almost 90% of what it had been in the height of the war but the number of homosexuals discharged were tripled. And while the focus of the Lavender Scare was to root out homosexuals in government positions, it had an impact nationally. Vice squads and companies with the sole purpose of finding and removing homosexuals in the workforce cropped up everywhere. Everywhere. You literally, any, any city or country area had a company to be like, we'll investigate your workers. And we'll let you know if there's anything suspicious about them, i.e. anything that made it seem like they were gay. And then they'd be fired. And so, you know, from university professors to blue-collar workers, homosexuals risked persecution and firing from their jobs just by existing. If even one person suspected another of homosexual proclivities, they'd be investigated and they'd lose their jobs. There was a lot of fear in the 1950s and 1960s for LGBTQ plus people. And so, I guess, summing up the post-war atmosphere, homosexuality is everywhere, the war is over, the government is expunging lesbians and gay men left and right, and LGBTQ plus communities are beginning to form. And, as is the way when a community of marginalized people form, a movement follows. So let's talk about the homophile movement, why don't we? I guess I should cover the whole what is the homophile movement, since for most people, their history classes didn't cover this sort of thing. Prior to the World Wars, most lesbians and gay men existed in secret. They had relationships, but they had to do their best to disguise these relationships. After World War II, however, lesbian and gay subcultures began to form, which allowed them to lay the foundation for numerous 20th century movements. One of the first movements was the homophile movement. The term homophile movement was created retroactively and refers to the organizations and political strategies employed by homosexuals prior to an era of confrontational activism of the late 1960s. So the movement emphasized love over sex and was known for how it favored non-confrontational education and endeavored to advance the cause of equal rights through conformance with the heterosexual norms prevalent at the time. These aspects of conformity and assimilation later drew criticism of the movement from LGBTQ plus activists in the 1970s. 
However, its origins centered around the need to address injustices against LGBTQ plus individuals. And this incorporation of political concerns within a cultural community was the beginning of today's LGBTQ plus movement. That's why it's important that we talk about it. Sure, we don't necessarily love their methods, but they survived and they thrived and we would not be where we are today without them. And that's kind of why I think it's important to talk about LGBTQ plus history in the first place, because everything that came before is what led us to now. But anyway, back to the homophile movement. So it began in the Netherlands in 1945, following the persecutions of homosexuals in World War II. The first major homophile organization in the United States was founded in 1950, and that was called the Mattachine Society. The Mattachine Society was established by Harry Hay, a labor organizer with ties to the Communist Party. When I say ties, I mean he's a card-carrying member, like tried and true. He wanted this society to serve as a means to protect the rights of gay men while also keeping their identity safe, because public exposure could result in job loss or worse. Hay believed that homosexuals were a distinct and oppressed class of people, able to combat ignorance with education and organize against the prejudice of dominant culture. Rather than simply shared sexual desires, this new cohesive identity was based on common political concerns, as well as a distinctive history and culture. So the idea of this cohesive identity came to him after reading Alfred Kinsey's Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, of which Hay had been one of the 5,300 interviewees, and also after hearing about the purge of homosexuals from the State Department. When the initial Kinsey report came out, Hay immediately purchased a copy of the report and carried it around with him almost everywhere. It was a big inspiration to him, and it's part of why the Mattachine Society formed. However, the Mattachine Society was not the first first organization in the U.S. It's just the most notable and the one that existed the longest. It was predated by the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, which was started in Magnus Her- by Magnus Hirschfeld in Germany in 1897 and then kind of had crop-ups in the U.S. of like, wow, what a great idea. Um, the Society for Human Rights, which was formed in Chicago 1924 by Henry Gerber, and the, the Veterans Benevolent Association, which was created in New York in 1945 to fight the treatment of veter- homosexual veterans, and it was known for its sponsorship of gay dances and parties. And the Knights of the Clock, which were found, clocks, which was founded in 1948 by Merton L. Byrd, an African-American man, and his lover, W. Dorleg. Um, so a bit of fun information about the Knights um, was that the word clocks was actually an acronym for the cloistered loyal order of the conclaved Knights of sophist- Sophistocracy. Say that ten times fast. And the Knights' purpose was to promote fellowship and understanding between homosexuals themselves, and specifically the other races, as well as to offer its members aid in securing employment and suitable housing, as taken from... Um, they're one of the memoirs written by the founders. Um, and so they existed for about four years, and they accomplished a pretty great deal. However, Hay likely wasn't aware of the veteran, the veteran, oh my god, the Veterans Benevolent Association, or the Knights, or the Society for Human Rights, and he felt like there wasn't an organization in the U.S. dedicated purely to protecting the rights of homosexuals. And so he's tried to create one. Triad is the key word here. It actually took him multiple attempts to gather enough people to form the Mattachine Society because so many people were just terrified of the risks of what an endeavor might bring. 
So the first attempt took place in July 1948. They had the proposed name of the American Bachelors of Wallace, and a group of drunk progressives like loved the idea. They were all for it. And then the next day came, they sobered up, and they were like, hmm, better not. Sorry, I'm out. However, 1950 rolls around, and the Mattachine Society finally forms. It's interesting, because their name stems from... It's French, I'm just gonna say it the way I think it's said. Society Mattachine. But imagine it French and spelled French, because it is. Um, and that was a secret fraternity of the medieval and early Renaissance eras in France. So the Society de Mattachine's members used to join together in clandestine dances and rituals during the vernal equinox. And they would appear in public dressed in motley and masks, and they would speak truth to power and challenge the oppressive church and state. So challenging oppressive states is a big thing in LGBTQ plus history. So that's kind of why they were like that society. That's who we're naming ourselves after. And the name was fitting for the organization, which in its original form was envisioned to be a militant organization whose goals was political reform. And from their own missions and purpose, stated that the Mattachine Society holds it possible and desirable that a highly ethical homosexual culture emerge as a consequence of its work, paralleling the emerging cultures of our fellow minorities. The society believes homosexuals can lead well-adjusted, wholesome, and socially productive lives once ignorance and prejudice against them is successfully combated, and once homosexuals feel they have a dignified and useful role to play in society. In accordance with their mission, one of the society's first actions was to protest the arrest of Dale Jennings. He was a member who was arrested for lewd and dissolute behavior in 1952. If you want to kind of brush up on the laws that were used to persecute LGBTQ plus people, check out our episode one, which is all about that. And it goes into a lot more detail about these what these laws were, especially the ones in California. Um... But, so, Dale Jennings is arrested, and the members of the Mattachine Society form a committee, um, the Citizens Committee to Outlaw Entrapment, and it was completely used to fight the charges brought against Jennings, and with the help of a lawyer, he was able to argue entrapment, and the case was dismissed following a hung jury. So Dale Jennings' case and the Mattachine Society's role in it was huge, because a man actually stood up in court. He stood up in court and admitted to being gay, and he still went free. This was the first time in California history that that had ever happened. And this was a huge precedent for homosexual activism in the U.S. Because now there were laws, and there were people helping fund lawyers and support you when you got arrested, and were there to fight for you. And that's kind of the really important thing of the homophile movement, was they were there and they helped in a lot of really important ways. And so, you know, it was a big success for the Mattachine Society. Except a year later, in 1953, um, the society kind of split because some of the members disagreed with Hayes' methods and the concept of homosexuality as a distinct culture and the communism that was involved. And there was just a lot of things and a lot of arguments and they kind of fractured a bit. The society's focus went from militant reform to advocating for homosexual attempts to conform to socially accepted norms. This call for assimilation became the basis of the homophile movement. 
Another major organization was the Daughters of Bilitis. Similar to the Mattachine Society in numerous ways, the Daughters of Bilitis was a lesbian society founded in 1955. It was founded by a lesbian couple, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, and the Daughters of Bilitis was created as a social group, giving lesbians a way to meet other lesbians. Lyon and Martin chose daughters because it sounded respectable, like the Daughters of the American Revolution, and they added Bilitis after a fictional lesbian in Pierre de Louis' 19th century poetry cycle, Songs of Bilitis. The Daughters of Bilitis quickly began political work on top of their social aspects, though. They sponsored lectures and discussions, and they worked with the Mattachine Society whenever it was beneficial to both groups. Their existence also brought forward a lot of gender issues. While many lesbians had been, or still were, married, since exposure could mean losing custody of their children and their jobs, a lot of single women in the workforce faced pressure to earn a living while having fewer job opportunities. They were paid less than men, and they dealt with sexual harassment. And they didn't have the support system of families, because again, if they were outed, they'd lose everything. Okay, it's also important to note that when the Daughters of Bilitis wanted to provide a social space for lesbians, they were very specifically trying to create an alternative means of socialization to the popular lesbian bars. They hated the bars. When Martin and Lyon moved to San Francisco, they felt isolated, and they thought that lesbian bars weren't safe. One historian wrote on the subject that those girls, and by this I mean working-class, bar-going lesbians, were rougher and scruffier than the sorts of people Martin and Lyon wanted for friends. Homosexual bars could be raided, and it wasn't easy to relax if you thought a paddy wagon might pull up in front of the place at any minute. Both women were also in their early 30s, so a little bit older than the bar-going crowd. And Del Martin had also recently lost custody of her daughter when she and Lyon had gotten together. And they didn't feel at home with the younger blue-collar types that frequented the bars. That, that kind of talks about a class divide that we'll touch on in a few seconds. Um, but so the Daughters of Bilitis were also similar to the Mattachine Society in that their existence was racked with disagreements, mostly on this front. When the Daughters of Bilitis first formed, there were numerous arguments among the other founders, and by the end of its first year, there were 15 members, but of the original eight, only three remained, because Martin and Lyon were so at odds with the behavior of some of the blue-collar members. The Daughters of Bilitis condemned lesbian bars, and therefore young and working-class lesbians, for perpetuating lesbian roles, i.e. butch and femme roles. The Daughters of Bilitis and other middle-class lesbians believed that such roles embodied the lesbian stereotypes and that were believed by heterosexuals and made lesbians outcasts. For the Daughters of Bilitis, anonymity and subtlety was the safest path towards change, but the younger generations of lesbians were unwilling to sacrifice such decisive aspects of their identity, and so unrest grew. And so, as I've said, while lesbian bars were a facet of pride for the young and working-class lesbians, others, particularly wealthy and middle-class lesbians, not only found the bars too much of a risk, but saw the bars as a blight on the lesbian community. They argued that bars went against the core beliefs of the homophile movement, and the Daughters of Bilitis promoted conformance with mainstream values just as much as the Mattachine Society had done, but such a stance, again, alienated blue-collar and butch lesbians. Bars were dangerous, too, is what they argued, and it made it hard for members of the community to come together. This was mostly because of police harassment and laws such as the Vaglude laws that I talked about in the last episode. If a bar owner was willing to pay for police protection, a bar would remain a safe haven, but this protection only extended as far as the police wanted it to. During election periods, when candidates wanted to clean up the streets, 
Raids became frequent, and to be caught in a gay bar was to have your entire life shattered. Police also had undercover agents in bars to try and entrap gay men and lesbian women, which was also a risk. It's partly because of these risks that gay bars were not nearly as popular with the upper and middle class lesbians and gay men as they were for the younger classes. Um, and so the, the butch and femme roles of the younger working class were not upheld by the upper and middle class lesbians at all. In fact, the wealthy seemed to find the roles repulsive and to those who dressed in suave, elegant, high fashion and just existed on a higher level. Hmm. It was, it was often common for the wealthy to live as bisexuals. And when I say live, I, whether they were lesbians who masqueraded as bi, whether they were actually bi, either way is valid. It's what they did. I'm not them. I don't know their lives. But we know that a lot of people who had lesbian tendencies married men, whether it was to keep their lesbianism hidden, whether it was marrying a gay man for a marriage of equals and convenience, whether it was marrying because their family required it of them to acquire their inheritance, or whether it was male for male companionship, it happened. Specifically with the male companionship one, wealthy lesbians seemed to not be particularly desirous of establishing long-term monogamous female marriages with their lesbian lovers, and instead they seemed to rely on their husbands for stability and continuity while they went through a lot of smaller, like, short-lived relationships with women. Also, again, some middle-class lesbians felt that butch and femme roles would expose them too much in a time when being outed was dangerous. Some even believed that it was butch and femme lesbians who made lesbians outcasts in the first place. But, while upper and middle-class lesbians disliked the bar scene, it had a huge role to play in LGBTQ plus history. Gay bars were one of the major places where the LGBTQ plus community thrived during the 1950s and the early 1960s. Lesbian bars were a new development, and they, and they were created in the wake of the Lavender Scare as a way for young and working-class lesbians to meet other lesbians while keeping their identity safe. Gay bars were one of the major places where the LGBTQ plus community thrived during the 1950s and the early 1960s. Lesbian bars were a new development created in the wake of the Lavender Scare as a way for young and working-class lesbians to meet other lesbians while keeping their identities safe from the persecution. The Lavender Scare didn't eradicate lesbianism from the U.S., but instead acted as a catalyst for lesbians across the country to start combating this persecution. In turn, lesbian bars were created as a place for young and working-class lesbians to act out the roles and relationships that the U.S. government wanted to expunge, and that became a part of a, a facet of pride for them. Also, the bars were a place for LGBTQ plus folks to meet up, as their homes were often too small to receive friends, or they lived with family who wouldn't approve of their sexuality. Due to the need to protect their identities, going to the bars could become very clandestine at times, and that was part of the adventure. Also, a lot of lesbians played sports, which was how they connected with each other, um, and these sports teams were sponsored by the bars. The most notable was um, softball. I guess that stereotype had to come from somewhere, folks, and I guess, you know, as a varsity softball player, all I can say is that both myself and my co-captain are very much gay, so, you know, maybe one day we'll really dive into where the lesbians play softball thing came from, but all you need to know is that in the 1950s, we were really holding that true. Um, but again, these teams were sponsored by bars, so it was common to patronize the bar that sponsored your team after a game or practice. Also, we've talked about the feminine butch identities a lot throughout this episode already, but they're really 
the lesbian bars were had a huge role in the formation and embodiment of these identities. Bars provided a spaces for many butch working class women um, because it was the only place where they could dress right in pants and in which they felt the most comfortable. In the 1950s and 60s, there were very few jobs that allowed a woman to wear pants, and it wasn't socially acceptable, so wearing pants in public would only draw attention to butch women. So, bars were one of the only places they could dress as they liked. While one butch lesbian of the time observed that the formation of butch and femorals mirrored those of a heterogendral pattern, she remarked that the problem was that the only models we had for our relationships were those of the traditional female-male roles, and they were, we were too busy trying to survive in a hostile world to have time to create new roles for ourselves. However, within the lesbian community, these roles began to operate as an indicator of membership within the lesbian subcommunity. Neither butch nor femme was an option if one wanted to be a part of the young working-class lesbian subculture. Those who refused to choose learned quickly that they were unwelcome. However, not all historians agree on this point. Some have suggested that butch and femme roles in relationships were not imitations of heterosexuality, but unique in themselves, based not on the social and sexual models all lesbians grew up with, but rather on natural drives and on lesbian-specific, lesbian-culturally-developed behavior. In their eyes, butches were saying, here is another way to be a woman in a society that only wanted women to appear and act in one way. It was also important to note that femme lesbians were not just simply covert lesbians, nor were they risking anything less than butch lesbians. Femme lesbians were just as rebellious as butch lesbians, just in different ways. They still existed and acted outside the norm of what was expected of a typical 1950s woman. They engaged in sexual relations outside of marriage while their, most of their young female heterosexual counterparts didn't dare. They braved the night alone to go out to gay bars and meet up with butches, while straight women had not yet attempted to take back the night and wander the streets for their own pleasure and purpose. Also, femme women also often supported themselves as well as their butch partners if their partner was unwilling to compromise her masculine appearance and was unable to find a job that wouldn't require donning a skirt. So I just wanted to mention that because I feel like a lot of times we talk about how cool butch women were and how femme women are just like covert lesbians and have it off easy like have it easy and I think that's a really damaging idea to hold and I think that we should never disrespect any member of our community by saying that they're not as important to our history and stuff like that if that makes sense what do I know I'm only 24 it's also important to note that while these roles were essential as rules of the game if you wanted to be one of the players, the roles were also not set in stone. There were women who reversed from butch to femme depending on the relationship, and sometimes even over the course of one night. The roles may have manifested so strongly in the 1950s because of the need of post-war America to simplify by categorizing and stereotyping. The roles were, in a sense, the path of least resistance within a community of young and working-class lesbians. And yet, as I mentioned, these roles and the popularity of LGBTQ plus bars wasn't embraced by the whole community. Still, when the time came, the bars became a battleground for change and they had a lot of significance for the LGBTQ plus community today. And also, the idea of butch and femme roles still exist and are still something that a lot of young lesbians learn about and really, they feel at home in that identity. It's a part of history that is still so important to them as young lesbians who are learning about themselves and learning about our community. And I think that's also something worth noting. Well, the homophile movement eventually, and I mean suddenly with a brick heart around the world, 
gave way to the gay liberation movement, it actually accomplished a huge amount for the LGBTQ plus community, and that's really important to talk about. Members of the Mattachine Society participated in research done by Evelyn Hooker, who is a psychologist whose 1957 essay and whose 1969 report as the chair of the National Institute of Mental Health Task Force on Homosexuality actually led to the rescinding of homosexuality from the American Psychiatrics Association's Diagnosis and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders in 1973, meaning that at the time, being gay was considered a mental illness. And she helped make it so that it wasn't. Homosexuality had been listed in the APA's DSM since 1952, and during that time, members of the LGBTQ community had been subjected to a variety of dangerous and damaging attempts to treat their homosexuality, as well as a great deal of social in- in discrimination. And while not a direct result of ME1 homophile organization, it's also important to mention Alfred Kinsey again. His works contributed to positive changes for the LGBTQ community, and they not only documented the liberalization in sexual mores, but also revealed that homosexuality was more common than previously assumed. Overall, the homophile movement created a sense of connection among previously isolated members of the LGBTQ community. Coupled with Kinsey and Hooker's research, the movement paved the way for members of the LGBTQ community to come out. In turn, the actions of the homophile movement allowed the LGBTQ community to not only organize publicly, but also articulate their needs and to fight against their exclusion. Without the homophile movement, the atmosphere in which gay men and lesbians were able to become politically active and push for greater change wouldn't have existed. So, like, no, we don't have to love the methods that they did. But I think it's important to talk about how they were surviving and they created so much change. Anyway, back back on the topic. So while the changes they brought were important, the end of the movement and the transition into the gay liberation movement is also really vital to understanding LGBTQ plus history. In the 1950s, those who felt alienated by the Daughters of Bilitis and other homophile organizations began to grow more militant, more radical, and eventually a shift within the entirety of the LGBTQ plus community took place, ending the homophile movement and starting the push for gay liberation. At first, it was small pushes and small acts of rebellion rather than one big event. I want to briefly touch on two of these events just to segue into what our next episode will talk about. One smaller push back took place at Cooper's Donuts in Los Angeles. Cooper's was a place where queens and other transients hung out and were often harassed by police officers. Police would often stop random customers in Coopers and demand to see identification as a way to try and entrap individuals dressing in drag and arrest them. In May 1959, John Retchie, a hustler, and two others were harassed by police officers and ordered to get into a squad car. A a mini-riot broke out. The drag queens and hustlers were fighting against the police officers throwing donuts and sugar canisters and literally anything they could get their hands on. More police showed up, and the street was cordoned off, but in the confusion, Retchie was able to escape. This became one of the first major acts of rebellion of the gay liberation movement, before it was the gay liberation movement. Another event of note took place in 1965 at Dewey's Coffee Shop in Philadelphia. Dewey's was a place where a lot of LGBTQ plus people hung out, and the owner didn't really like that. He He stopped serving, he gave the order to stop serving LGBTQ plus individuals to hope that it would make them go away and be better for his business. 
In turn, a group of young LGBTQ plus individuals, two boys and one girl, staged a sit-in when they were refused service. Three, the three were arrested. However, a homophile organization, the Janus Society, created leaflets about the discrimination and the persecution and stood in front of Dewey's handing out the leaflets to anyone who entered the shop or walked by. In the end, the bad publicity was enough and the owner of the coffee shop reversed his policy. There are so many instances like this of small localized rebellions of people fighting back against the discrimination they faced in the 1960s. Unfortunately, this is the end of our episode today. I'll be focusing on these smaller rebellions in further detail, as well as the Stonewall riots in the next episode, and also looking at the formation and impact of the gay liberation movement. So for all of you out there listening, I hope you learned something interesting today. Our history is such an important part of our community and our existence today, and sadly I could only talk about some of the major bits pretty briefly. However, I hope that it kind of drives home how big of an impact those smaller things did have how our past has had a huge influence on where we are today. Um, If you want to learn more, check out the LGB Time Machine website for some recommendations on further reading you can do. And this has been LGB Time Machine with Theo. Thanks for coming aboard and joining me on this adventure. I hope to see you again soon, but until then, love and light to you. Bye.